Welcome to the Calibre podcast, brought to you by the Watchers of Switzerland group. In this incredible episode, we meet Carl Cox, a musical ambassador and veteran of Acid House, champion of techno, one of the most influential names in the industry. Carl, you're a DJ, a remixer, live artist, music producer, three-deck wizard, gatekeeper to dance music, a career that spans over three decades, and we're going to talk to you about your passion for Extreme E, and after your really first successful venture and partnership with Zenith, your second collaboration as we launch your watch, The Defy Extreme. Yeah, there's a lot going on there, isn't there, really? (laughs) You've been busy. (laughs) I mean, it's it's incredible when you, you know... uh, look back on on so much that I've done and and, and, and as you can imagine I've done so much more but uh, to have certain highlights of my life and things that really have been a big part of my life I mean time pieces have been a big part of my life I I remember going back uh, yeah nearly 30 odd years ago when I took my first flight to France and I was going to earn some money and I came back and and I earned some money playing in France and I bought my first watch you know, in the, in the airport, you know, and it was about, about 150 pounds or something like that. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to ask you, what was the watch? It was a Gucci. Was it Gucci? My first Gucci, it was my first Gucci watch. And I, I, I was trying to find if I could still find it somewhere. I have a, actually have a picture of it somewhere, um, which um, hopefully I might put it up online if I find it, put it up on my first watch. And, and that was my kind of like first opportunity to understand the reasons why I, I mean, I'm a very punctual man, but I always had something on my wrist that I wanted to look towards, and it was something of which uh, represents me, timing, and what basically makes me feel good at the end of the day. And so I have a, a, a good array of watches, of course, all the way down the line, and it was, and it got to a point where, you know, there was a certain amount of people that was coming towards me, companies, because, you know, when I'm DJing, I've got my hands in the air, so yeah. like, if he's got his hands in the air, what should he wear it, you know? So everyone, everyone at the time was always interested in seeing what watch I was representing. So I was always wearing a different watch at different points in time uh, at that particular time. And and then um, about five years ago um, with Zenith, it, it, it was uh, something of which I, I really kind of loved the fact that Zenith is underground, you know, yep. it's, it, you have to find it. You have to discover these watches, and then to understand the history of Zenith as well. They haven't been here just for two, you know over the last two years. They've been here over a hundred years of making these timepieces. And for me to be able to represent them as a, a friend of the, the brand, as an ambassador uh, for for their watches, um, I think it was only fitting that I didn't just wear one of their timepieces, but to be involved in something that would represent myself and also how I felt about them in a sense of collaboration with Zenith. So I was very taken back by by them saying that, yeah, we would love to do that and work with you on that. Um, out of all the brands that I've, I've, I've ever worn and bought uh, in my lifetime, uh, Zenith was the, the very ones that kind of understood that I had something to give based on uh, ideas and, and, and creation. Well, there's clearly a great dynamic between the two brands. I mean, the watch that you're wearing um, and this edition, it's the world's fastest series made chronograph. And obviously you're, indus- you're, an, you're a legend in your industry as well. So there's a lot of synergies. Mm. Um, and I appreciate what you're saying about they're not, you know, you might have to go underground. The, the mm. Zenith are a legitimate brand, always have been. Wonderful heritage. Mm. Um, where they're a great partner with us at Watches of Switzerland. And it's wonderful to see it on your wrist. It really suits you as well. Yeah, I, I was kind of very taken aback by because, you know, when you have ideas and are on paper and they send send you what they, they, they've done and, and I'll kind of come back and forth with ideas and, and then eventually you're presented with the, with the article. Um, 
And then you know, put it on, you know, and I, I felt like I was getting married. <laughs> you know, does it fit the ring? You know? And, uh, you know, I put it on and I was just like, wow, well, that definitely is. <laughs> well, it's, it's a, a big case. It's forty-five millimeters, so it's, um, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a big, it's, it's a, it's a big watch. But um, it looks great. I didn't realize you were involved in the creative process as well. That's yeah. brilliant because obviously, as an artist and everything that you're involved with, I really like the fact that it wasn't Zenith working with Carl Cox, and this is the watch we're going to make, and just put your name on it. There's been a yes. real collaboration. Hundred percent, yes, and and I think we had a really great understanding with the first watch because uh, it kind of took them out of their little comfort zone based on how the how the uh, the Carlcox Motorsport uh, watch came about. In the end of the day, being carbon fiber and and the, the color of the watch and everything, it's it's more sports than it is actually uh, a classic watch which which you would wear, you know, with a dinner suit. But this watch is uh, much more classic in its way uh, and and it would have I think it's an instant classic this watch you know in, a, in 50 years you'll still look at this watch and go okay that was the of the time it yeah. was when it was made uh, we thought about how we wanted to roll this watch out and how it was perceived with myself being involved in that watch um, you know I could talk about this watch all day long you know based on its uh, concept but the idea really was to make something which was my history my legacy my my ideal of if I was wearing a timepiece what would it be like well actually it would be like this one so i'm very happy with the way how it's happened well congratulations it looks great Thank um, you. um we're really excited then it's only 100 of them so um it's 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 great it's a great model to have um it's oh, likely to be the only one I'll get to see. So thank you very much all <laughs> for wearing it tonight. No um, we'll come back to the, pe- uh, the Zenith partnership. Yes. But um, if we could go back a little bit to your career. Yeah. Uh, Watches Switzerland, we have um, an affiliation with the Prince's Trust. I'm aware that you also had that had a really big impact in your c- career in the early days. Yeah, the Prince's Trust. Wow. You know, when um, it came about, I, I can't remember how it, it, it kind of crossed across me, but I think it was in some sort of news. I think it came up where uh, Prince Charles at a particular time, uh, he wanted to roll out the Prince's Trust and he wanted to help people who had ideals for small businesses. And me being um, a DJ or, or semi-professional at that time, I did need help somehow. The banks wasn't helping me in any way, shape or form. I just didn't have any equity or anything to basically give them in, at that particular time because uh, I, I was working um, very hard at that time, but I didn't have any equity in anything, so I couldn't borrow any money from the banks. But what was really appealing was that they said if you had uh, at least a thousand pounds in uh, your business or you can raise a thousand pounds then the Prince's Trust will give you a thousand pounds but also for 13 weeks um, you go into a, a business school and learn about um, a bit how to create a business model how to uh, understand the profit and loss how to do your bookkeeping and I was just like well this is wonderful and at the same time we're going to give you money as well so they're kind of taking off the doll uh, you have to go on the doll basically to do this but it just showed commitment more than anything else and so I, I signed up for it and um, I did the, the schooling for 13 weeks so I, I, I committed myself to making sure that I, I made every single class and, and for all of that uh, I passed with flying colours uh, to be able to then uh, uh, have the, the extra money that, that they basically gave me which is the extra thousand pounds so I used that to put a deposit down on a, on a van that I needed for my, my disco uh, equipment and records and and I used the rest of the money for uh, marketing so the yellow pages that I I, I used to um, every uh, uh, every year um, obviously put the money into to advertise my business and that really 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 helped a lot in the end of the day because people were looking for mobile discos and my name would come up not that I 
was known very much at that particular time for mobile disco. It's just the way how I rolled it out. Uh, it was called Astral Disco at the time. And the reason why it was called Astral Disco was because my mum always um, used this cream called Astral Di- Cream. In the blue jar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm showing my age now. Actually, you... Your listeners aren't. Not everyone's going to know what we talk about with the yellow pages. It's not, now. Yeah. It's, it's that was our social yeah. media. The yellow pages <laughs> was was the way how to reach out to people. And and if you wanted anything, you just looked at the yellow pages. Um, so it, th- that really helped a lot. The Princess Trust, in the end of the day, was the very thing that that got me to to understand that my small business could be something of of, of something that could happen because nobody really made uh, mobile discos into an initial business at that time. It was just seen as something which you just did as a hobby as a bit of a crack as a bit of a laugh and and that got, but I took it very seriously you know as a commodity and uh, and I made it work for me for sure clearly you were very dedicated to it and mm. that mobile disco then now we're looking at over 150,000 vinyls have I read that correctly over 150,000 pieces of absolute vinyl and my collection basically started from my father's collection so he's the one that I basically started uh, to you know collect music at a particular time and and then eventually I started to earn money that I could basically start buying my own records and start my own record collection not that I was thinking about doing it it just happened where I, I had like a crate of of uh, 45s and then I kept buying 45s and had another crate of 45s and then started buying albums and then I had a small little record box and I had a double record box and I had three record boxes and it just kind of grew like that uh, from from my dad's collection which which he started buying records from 1968 um, and then I, I kind of took it over around, around about 1974-75 as my own collection and then then basically just buying records all the way through until around about 2009-2010 where uh, things started to go digital and, and records basically started to uh, decline at that particular time. So what's fascinating there is the um, the link between the inspiration clearly was from your dad and his his music collection and I wonder how it must feel for you to be so influential in knowing that you have inspired generations of the same families where they've got so much joy from your creative expression because of how long you've been doing what you do and the passion that you have for it so knowing that the inspiration you had came or your love came from your father's collection and you're now passing on that to hundreds of thousands of people but also you know families can talk about when the parents saw you yeah, and then who's right. and who's now coming to you to your gigs now yeah it is seriously bizarre <laughs> you know I, you know i have so many you know sons and daughters now come to me uh, to my events even today um based on their mothers and fathers uh, that that uh, went to see me back in their day uh so i've definitely been crossing over to <laughs> generations and then more generations to come um i've been fortunate enough to be able to uh, uh, at least be uh around in the last three three generations of 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 people who have experienced me from right back in the day until even till today um i'll still get 50 year olds and 60 year olds who still want to kind of sneak out and enjoy at least one or two hours of my music and their sons and daughters uh are the ones that are now you know going to all these festivals and all and following me all around the world um i never ever thought that that was ever going to happen to me in any way shape or form but it did uh and it still is you know it's uh nobody really wants me to turn the foot off the gas at all because as far as they're concerned i'm still giving everyone a, a great time based on my music 
selection and how I produce my music and, and even turning the corner by what I'm doing now by producing the music live and performing the music live electronically. So I'm, I'm just really happy to be able to be where I am at the moment and still share the love of music like I've always done uh, even from when I was sharing the love of music with my father's collection it's nothing's changed it's, it's exactly on the way how I feel about doing that and I think that's what the difference is between myself and many, maybe many others uh, DJs and producers who are making music and playing and, and also producing their, their records but I've really come from the old school you know on the way how you accept people for who they are and, and artists for who, who they are and, and you know I love to always try and find you know, if I like an artist, what else do that has that artist got? You know, in in their in their kind of collection of, of what the music that they make. Yeah, there's going to be commonality. Yes, yeah, so I always feel that. You know, I mean, I have a lot of kind of you know my ears are always open I've always been open-minded to music and 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 to, to feel that there's, there's goodness in everything uh, as much as it possibly can and and you just experience something that you may not understand but 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 you know and understand the reason why that artist made that that track or that tune and 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 kind of get behind that idea as well and bring people up if if records uh, doesn't kind of hit hit you uh, how you feel about music now uh, maybe it's too soon for you so give it a chance and then maybe in another six more t- months time or something like that but then you start to feel it and understand where they were trying to say in their music so I've always kind of thought about music in that way yeah timing I never thought about it in terms of how the timing of it and what how it delivers on that approach that's um, yeah, interesting um when and why did you start mixing with three decks i really decided to learn the the ideal of pushing the boundaries of turntable mixing now most djs at that particular time and all the djs that i had seen was only mixing on two turntables and i just felt there's no reason why I can't introduce a third one. It's kind of like uh, spinning plates. You get one plate, you spin one, and you get the other one, you spin the other one, and you get the other one, and you go, well, okay. And then that one's kind of like slowing down. So it's kind of like spinning plates when you're, when you're doing that. But also, um, it's difficult to, to mix two records in that are not perfectly in 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 a uh, a 4-4 beat formation you know a lot of the music back in the day was was made by bands and the only and the only person that was kind of holding that band rhythmically was the drummer so if he had a drink the night before (laughs) he would would be out kind of out of beat and then you know trying to mix that was always very difficult but as uh, we were going along electronically I was always trying to kind of ride the mix here and, and, and get the mix perfectly uh, on the on the drops, on the beats and, and where everything that I felt made sense. And to do that with three turntables was a bit of a wonder because it was something of which I had to, pre- uh, I would say, perfect first before I actually put that, uh, took that to the test and put it on the road. So I was driving my mum and dad and my sisters mad by just relentlessly playing the same records over and over again to understand what I was trying to achieve by free free turntable mixing to be able to go right I'm going to do this now out in the field so round about 1988-89 I think it was a party that I did back in Oxford uh, called Miss Summer's Night Dream and I went on at I think 10 o'clock in the morning so at that particular time everyone had heard most of the DJs but um, but I was also very relatively unknown and I had two copies of uh, Little Louis French Kiss and I had a um, uh, an acapella version of Doug Lazy's Let It Roll so if you had heard those records individually 
but he hadn't heard them in a free turntable format. And then here I am. So this was my my kind of like my signature to what what I've always kind of professed to do by how I mix music. And I put these three records together and I mixed them relentlessly and, and kind of remixed them live. And everyone that was at that, that, that party at that particular point, they hadn't heard anything like that before in their lives. Um, and they basically were turning around and saying, who's this guy? And, and my girlfriend at the time, Maxine Bradshaw, she was like, she had this car in Colcox. So she was like, hand out his car. Yes, Colcox, Colcox. And then uh, eventually um, I got booked on every single <laughs> rave event since then. But I also I had to do three, tur- three deck turntable mixing on every single event. So um, it was the beginning of, of my uh, career right from that point. You've never had a night at home since then. <laughs> no, um, no. So your your precision and you're you're ap- you know you're very focused on getting it you know it, it being correct. There was a real passion in terms of the focus of of the technical element. It wasn't just the music for you. It was there was a real focus on it working. And obviously, as you said, your your family you drove them mad. I understand that my little brother was a drummer. Um, <laughs> But um, I'm, I'm sure your your family now. Do they come to your Do they come to your gigs? They they used to used to. Unfortunately, they both passed away now. Um, but my mum was always very proud. My dad was always like, "Get a proper job," you know. <laughs> really, you know, he was just like, "You're making too much noise. It's never going to happen for you." Uh, and and you know, he couldn't see you know what I actually really had. My mum did, so she helped me buy my first turntables. Actually, so you know everything that happened to me in, in that way I had support from my mum more than anything else so she eventually came to some of my parties and she was always always very proud of, of how I always uh, commanded the dance floor when it, I mean she used to come to all the weddings and birthday parties I used to do because a lot of them were her friends and families as well that I used to do the the parties for so I became basically the consummate DJ for my family and uh, and, and that's how it, it my mum kind of saw me you know DJ and how I played the music to everyone and and how my career started actually because I was a mobile disco first DJ first for about 15 years Uh, but then within the music I was playing I was always playing music which represented the funk and soul and 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 the element of of black music within the top 40 elements of music and mix all these records together in such a way um, and and have that journey of of the music that I was playing especially in you know a wedding is a very difficult thing to do because you got a lot of people who are there who do that love every Everything, all different types of music, not just one genre of music. So, if you can rock a wedding, you can rock anything. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I, that's that's a tough crowd, isn't it? Because there is so there's such diversity. Whereas somebody that's coming to one of your gigs now, they want to see you and what you play. Whereas um, you didn't invite the audience or of a of a wedding. But no. I like the I like the synergy, the precision of what you do versus the the industry that we work in and what Zenith do. Because the watch that you're wearing. Um, as we reference, it's the world fastest series, um, and it's powered by one one hundredth of a second. The El Primero is legendary, as you are. So I think there there are a lot of synergies, um, and pr- quite similar to the your other passion, which we'll come on to. Um, uh, we'll, we'll come on to um, in a second. So, what have been your main influences over the the genres that you choose to play? Because you do cover quite a lot. Yeah, there is a lot. Um, of, of I mean. I've always really been into uh, rhythm and rhythm and blues, into jazz, uh, Latin jazz, um, funk. Really into funk music, uh, soul, uh, jazz funk. It, it was a, a moment in time where, uh, in the UK, we had this jazz jazz funk movement. Um, 
But yeah, black music as a whole, you know, when I was, uh, started playing a lot of uh, early uh, house music, all, most of it all came from America. Um, and and I, I felt it, all this, this style of music, of course, coming through the 80s, coming through Kraftwerk, Gary Newman, Ultravox, all that sort of stuff. The punk era, you know, <laughs> came through Sham 69, Public Image Limited, um, obviously the Sex Pistols. I, I came through every single more or less genre and, and got exposed to, to everything that you can think of at that particular time. You know, even David Cassidy and Mark Boland and, and all the glam rocks at that particular time, Slade and, and uh, Shawadi Wadi. You know, people are going to be, who, who is he talking about? <laughs> Sorry, but, we reference Yellow Pages and Astral as well. So. <laughs> Shawadi Wadi, you know, uh, and um, Alvin Stardust, you know what I mean? The list goes on. This is how old I am. I'm I've been through everything, and but to understand the future of music and and the way how I've embraced you know the, the techno and house music and drum and bass and and rave and and that kind of concept of sound of where we are at the moment now, um, it's it's been a, an amazing musical journey for for me to to uh, to be exposed to all of that style of music and and. Um, you know, if I'm in my car, you know, I, I don't play house or techno music in my car. I play rhythm and blues. I play jazz. Uh, I play a lot of um, Detroit, uh, Tamil Motown sound. Because uh, like, there were just such great moments in life at a particular point. And, and the music and the culture of the sound and everything, um, it, it just rings so true to my youth and, and, and how I grew up with this music and sound um, that I like to go back to, in some ways to go forward based on where I am with my own music and uh, and with that it's it's I feel fortunate to be able to you know live through those moments uh, especially um, you know Elvis Presley I mean uh, he, he basically is the whitest black man with, that I know <laughs> with, with such a great voice if you didn't know he was white you think he was black because he had such a great blues voice but again you know he, he's he was uh, such a prolific amazing person that basically you know uh, uh, set the world on fire based on uh, his his delivery of his music favorite Elvis song um <laughs> you put on favorite Elvis song I I would I was going to say Green Green Grass at home but um I I did enjoy Jailhouse Rock mm-hmm. for me that was fun because it, it was in the movie um and you know the way how you know you're in jail <laughs> <laughs> and he's rocking out you know yeah. it's like okay uh, that's how he got out of jail I think <laughs> he sung his way out of the prison but um, yeah I, I just love the way how it's so quirky and, and electric and alive yeah very different for Johnny Cash's um, um, jail experiences but we, 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 we could have hours on this and yeah. um, unfortunately I'm, I'm, I'm not allowed to digress um, <laughs> so from raves to racing you've got a huge passion for um, Extreme E I know nothing about it please educate mm. me Wow, so how long have we got? <laughs> this is going to take a while. So I've always been into um, uh, racing, you know, whether it's motorcycles, whether it's push bike, whether it's um, hang gliders, everything, it doesn't matter. I've always uh, enjoyed the competition of racing. And w- I mean, I've, I've been a consummate petrol head for the, for, for the longest time in, in, and I've raced cars myself uh, still today in, in, a, in the realms of drag racing. But Extreme E has excited me based on that it's the future of, of motorsports where we are at the moment. And not many people can see that right now because they feel that you need to hear something you know a mechanical that that basically shakes your bones when you when something goes past you want to hear around well extremely you don't get that you just get gravel sound and wind noise and and a certain sound of the servos pushing in the motors but it's still a force of nature in in some ways of the way how how it's been able to be contained in such a way the power of it uh, but also 
<clears throat> with extreme you're not polluting the air it's a it's all sustainable energy it's all something of which um i feel a lot of the now generations are connected to that you know in the sense of uh, climate change polluting the air uh, the, the world around us this very you know extreme is very conscious of that and also what i like about extreme i mean if you look if you watch formula one um it takes two hours for them to go around and whoever got the whole shot at the beginning is probably the one that's going to win at the end unless they you know something happens because you know, catastrophically but in extreme e it will, it will finish this in 20 minutes so and you can get on to racing again you know in, in the sense of 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 how quick it really is based on how long the batteries last in the cars actually but i kind of like the, the concept of the idea of that and also that you have a female driver and you have a male driver who are on equal standing the, that doesn't happen in, in hardly any motorsport that, you, that we can think of unless it's an all women's team or it's just an all males team but this is fantastic to see how you know actually the women are actually just as quick as the guys or in fact have more so the gusto than the guys have um so it gives a really good energy in the in the in the camps and and also between our teams but i was really uh uh impressed on on how the the, the cars deal with such extreme uh track conditions um and what they've been and what they're what the cars get put through um it's not normal at all you know based on how the drivers have to basically uh, uh they're like wild horses they just buck and bronc bron bron Broco everywhere and um, it's quite funny because they have like you know every time they go out they have uh, a team briefing a driver's briefing they say right okay you know how much these cars cost you know we, we, we don't want we know, we know rubbing is racing and everything but we don't want to hit each other and as soon as they go out the first thing they do is smash into each other <laughs> and it's like oh my god um, but you can't help it because the terrain is so off camber and jumps and the ruts and everything I, I got taken round uh, for the first time to see how gnarly the track is and it's probably the most gnarliest track that there, there is in any racetrack and that, that you can basically bring to towards I mean you know any rally stage that you have um, going through the woods and, and, and all the marsh and, and gravel and everything. Extreme is far worse. The, the, the actual terrain is far worse than, than any rally track. So it really is extreme. And, and I kind of like the idea that they're pushing the envelope of all that, which excites me. So um, to be a part of that with my own race team, uh, Colcos Motorsports, um, it's, it's a very exciting prospect that that nothing is is it's not combustion engines that are forcing these uh, cars. It's basically battery powered, uh, of which um, they're they're charged by um, hydrogen um, generators. So it's not a diesel engine generating the batteries to be charged. Um, they're looking towards also having hydrogen race cars as well in the future. Gosh, I understand it to be one of the most dangerous sports there is. Is that correct? By by what I saw last weekend, hundred uh, percent. Yeah, it's it's not. I mean, you know, drag race is quite quite dangerous as well as 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 quite most motorsports. If you if you think about MotoGP and the crashes that they have, even the motorbikes. And if you look at the Isle of Man, uh, Isle of Man TT, you know, every year there's always a fatality in in that in some ways. Where extremely there's no real fatalities, but if they if these things roll and roll and roll, you know, the drivers do get pretty well banged up. So they there is a, a certain decorum on on how how they treat each other on the track, which uh, was a certain amount of respect but you wouldn't 
think so. The way how the cards come back in in pieces, you're like, oh my god. Okay, Robin is racing, and we get that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you have to believe that, you know. Um, but it's yeah, it, it's not um, not an easy thing to be doing. Not everyone can do it. Now, I'm I'm quite um, a, a bit of a daredevil when it comes to driving anything, but to be honest, uh, I have no desire <laughs> to jump in one of these cars and and race or drive at any point. Uh, I leave that to the professionals. Good to know. We'll, we'll just we'll see you behind the decks. So your life choices, both personally and professionally, are passion-led, adrenaline-fueled, emotive, intense, high-octane, and euphoric. I think you're literally living the life that most people dream of. Legendary DJ, fast cars, and stunning watches. Carl Cox, it has been an absolute pleasure to meet with you this evening. I hope that the partnership with Zenith goes on for many, many years. It's a really wonderful um allegiance and um it's been a real pleasure for us to meet you today so thanks for taking the time out thank you i've had a blast thank you very much it's been great (laughs) thanks for listening to the caliber podcast we hope you enjoyed it for more from watches of switzerland please follow us on your favorite podcast platform